Hello, this is Alex Granado, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today, we're talking with Matt Jingos. He is an Ed Policy Researcher and Director of the Urban Institute's Education Policy Program. He has uh, done a lot of work researching the uh, K-3 class size reduction in Florida, and uh, I'm talking with him today about that. Matt, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me on the, on the podcast. So um, in North Carolina, we've recently had uh, kind of a political battle over class size reduction. That stemmed largely from some of the um, unexpected consequences that came from the General Assembly's attempt to reduce class size. Uh, But we've had less of a reduction uh, or less of a conversation about the productiveness of class size reductions. Um, And so I'm wondering if you can share some of what you've learned in Florida about that. How effective is class size reduction and and what kind of class size reductions do you need to see some results? Sure. So, you know, so we have research from the work I've done in Florida, but also from a, from a number of other places. And I think what it shows pretty broadly is that in some circumstances, you know, smaller classes can have a positive impact on students' performance on standardized tests on some longer run outcomes as well. Um, but you have to consider both kind of the implementation challenges and you know, what you, what you get from the most famous class size study, which was an experiment in Tennessee in the 1980s, which has some of the most positive effects, may not be what you get when a, a state tries to implement class size reduction statewide as, you know, as Florida tried to do uh, starting in the early 2000s. So what I did in Florida is I took a look at, uh, first, did, the way they implemented the law is that first districts had to reduce their average class size and then schools had to reduce their average class size. So I could compare districts and schools that were reducing class size to those that didn't have to yet because they had already reduced it at the level it was required. And what I found is that as the districts and schools reduced their class sizes, it didn't seem to, you know, by a few students, it didn't seem to translate into anything in the way of student test scores or, or absenteeism, you know, the outcomes that I that I looked at. So it, it suggests that you're not going to always uh, maybe get what you think out of these statewide programs. And so you were looking at um, this in Florida, where it sounds like they were reducing class sizes just by a few students. Have you um, looked at research elsewhere or researched yourself elsewhere where maybe the reductions were more dramatic, or, or are you familiar with the research on that topic? So in Florida, it was kind of a few students at a time in the different, I was sort of chunking out pieces of the reduction in order to get sort of credible uh, comparison groups so that you had something to compare the schools and districts that were reducing their class size to. Um, so, I mean, Tennessee was a pretty large reduction in class size in the early grades from, you know, average of about 22 to 15 in that experiment. Um, so some people say, you know, you, that 15 is the magic number based on that study, but that's, you know, one study from, from quite a long time ago. Um, now, and it, it doesn't tell us actually that 15 is the right number, that just happened to be the average of you know, the, the set of small classes that they were studying. You know, California is another example where they reduced in the early grades class size from 30 to 20, and at least the first couple studies on that um, found you know, some kind of positive effects in the long run, small positive effects, but that were offset at least in the short run by the fact that California had to hire, hire a lot of new teachers very quickly, including a lot of uncertified teachers. And so what do you think a state like North Carolina that, that's really looking uh, to put a, a lot of attention on this subject can learn from some of what you're talking about? So, I mean, I think one, one lesson from the research is that when you're reducing class size and you don't want to do it uh, too much too fast, 
uh, because that can lead to unintended consequences like having to hire teachers who, you know, are people that you wouldn't have hired if you, know, if you didn't have to reduce class size. I mean, I think another one is just thinking about relative cost benefits, not just is class size and, you know, smaller classes a nice thing to have, but are smaller classes a nicer thing to have than other things that schools can buy with similar resources? And the thing is that reducing class size is one of the most expensive things you could do in education because you have to hire more teachers and build more classrooms. That's where most, most school funding goes. It goes to paying teachers and other school staff and you know, to building buildings. So really the, the question that policymakers have to ask themselves is not do I want a class that's you know, a couple of kids smaller, it's do I want a class that's a couple of kids smaller or do I want to invest more in um, art programs or healthcare staff in the school or tutoring or what have you. And on the flip side, if it's the question they have to ask in that era of budget cuts is, do I want to let classes get a couple of kids larger or do I want to eliminate my music and athletics program? So that's, it's real trade-offs you, have, you face. You have to think about whether any benefit you're getting from a smaller class, which the research indicates is probably going to be pretty small, um, whether, that's, whether that's worth the significant investment of resources it takes to do it. And, and yet, whenever we start talking about, um, you know, what we can do to improve education, it seems like on a policy level, the idea of class size comes up a lot. Why do you think that is? It's because people have an intuitive sense that, you know, smaller class is a nice thing. And, kind of, and it's, it's not just one group of people, it's lots of groups of people. So I think parents like the idea of smaller classes because I think their children are get more attention. Uh, teachers like smaller classes because you know they feel they can devote more attention to each child, and it's it's also a working condition. It's you know it's less work. It's easier to teach teach fewer kids. I think teachers unions like smaller classes because teachers uh, because smaller classes means more teachers, which means more members for for teachers unions. So you know politicians are you know kind of put in a position where this is something everybody likes. There aren't that many folks who are who are really against it. Um, so they're kind of happy, happy to provide, provide what people want. Now, in, in your research, um, you know, you mentioned that there is some belief that 15 is the magic number based on, you know, this Tennessee study. And, and you kind of questioned that because it's an older study. But um, is, is there any research into what is the right number of students to have in a classroom and whether there is an upper limit beyond which it becomes a problem? research that gets at that. I mean, so some researchers have tried to look for what they, you know, what's technically called a non-linearity. So, so if the relationship is linear, it means that, you know, one, a change of one kid in the class size is going to have a certain effect on outcomes. It's going to be the same whether you're going from 15 to 16 kids or to 20 to 21 kids. So people have looked to see, does there seem to be some range of class sizes where either that are small enough that make a big big positive difference or large enough that make a big negative difference and I'm not aware anyone's found any um, any evidence um, of, of that and so wh- where's Florida at now on this issue that's a good question I mean so when Florida passed so it wasn't just the law they passed it was actually an amendment to their state constitution that was put on the ballot so when Florida passed this in 2002, I think it passed by 55% of the vote to put it in the state constitution uh, to have caps on class sizes in, if that are different for different grades. And at the same time, they also passed an amendment saying that all future amendments would have to get at least 60% of the vote to pass. Um, so then, you know, a number of years later, Florida kind of realized that this class size amendment wasn't such a great idea. They put it out back on the ballot. 
and a majority of Floridians voted to keep the class size limits, but only on school averages. Um, so the idea is that an individual class could go above the limit, but the school as an average would have to stay, stay below the limit. And as I said, a majority of Floridians wanted to make that change, but it wasn't 60%, so they had locked themselves into this to this old, old law. So I believe that they're you know, still where they were before. Um, and I think the limits were, I want to say, 18 in the early grades, 22 in the middle grades, and 25 in, in high school. But uh, you might want to double-check that because it's been a little while since I've looked at the numbers. One of the complaints I've heard here from local districts when it comes to kind of our class size mandates uh, there's a few different ones. One, one of them is that kids don't come in neat packages of, you know, whatever the number is, 17, for instance. And so when you mandate a certain size for the class, that can cause both logistical problems and problems with the availability of uh, facilities. And also that, um, you know, class size mandates kind of fly in the face of the idea that the district needs to be able to construct their classrooms in the way that they know is best for instruction. So that may mean, um, you know, some classrooms have more than whatever the expected number of students is, and some may have less, depending on the needs of the students, the ability of the teacher, etc. Um, do we see some of that debate play out in Florida as well? I think that's a really important point. I mean, these statewide mandates or presuppose the state knows better than the, than the local district and school about how, how to allocate kids to classes. And I didn't follow the political debate in Florida that closely, but I imagine that exact discussion about is it the individual class you want to put a cap on the class size for or uh, for the average. And as I said, a majority of Floridians were comfortable moving to the average because what the average does is, is it, it's, a, it's still a way for voters to say, we don't want our classes to get beyond a certain point. You know, we don't want to have classes with 30 and 40 kids in them. But it also acknowledges the fact that you said that kids don't come in these perfect packages of multiples of whatever the cap is. So, you know, in a world with an 18 cap, if you have 36 kids, that's two classes of, of uh, 18. But if you have 37 kids, now you have to have three classes with 12 or 13 kids. So using the average for the school would let you say, okay, well we're gonna we're gonna target the an average of 18 kids per class, and sure there'll be some classes with 16 and some with 20, um, but uh, but we're not gonna mandate that no class shall be you know above 18 because then we know the average is gonna be a lot higher than that. I guess the other way to handle that is we could pass a law saying that we're going to have the average be no more than 18 and then any individual class will never be more than 22. Pick, pick whatever your number is. Uh, so this may be a little bit outside your wheelhouse, but, but I'm curious because I've also heard uh, some education policy leaders saying that as we move more into personalized learning and project-based learning and this kind of thing, questions of class size become a little different because while a class may appear to have a large number of students. They're not necessarily all sitting there being taught by one teacher. They may be split off into groups. They may be, you know, learning at their own pace, um, using technology or what have you. And, and it kind of changes the dynamics of how teaching is done. Uh, have you heard anything about how this might change this issue? I think it absolutely, you know, can change that issue. You know, we, we tend to think of our kids sitting in one classroom with one teacher for the whole day, which is, you know, how elementary schools work for, for a long time. But as schools experiment with different models, and you're right, technology is part of that. 
but some schools do co-teaching models and have for, for many years. So if you think about the word technology, kind of the broader sense, the technology of, of education going before computers to just, you know, how do you arrange personnel and kids? Do you have one math teacher, one ELA teacher? Do you have one teacher all day? Do you have two teachers all day? Do you have a teacher and eight all day? Uh, the concept of class size you know, can mean a lot of different things. You know, is it the ratio of kids to teachers in that room? So is right is a class of 20 kids with two teachers, is that a class size of 20 or of, of, of 10? And this really just gets back to this idea that you don't want to put all your eggs in the basket of how many kids are sitting in that room. You also want to think about the other arrangements and, and use of, of resources to figure out what's, what's, the, what's best for kids. Well, Matt, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for the invitation. We've been talking with Matt Chingos. He's an ed policy researcher and director of the Urban Institute's Education Policy Program. And I'm Alex Granados, senior reporter for Education NC, and you've been listening to Ed Talk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>